Good morning, everybody. We're going to be focusing today on IPC leadership governance and management. And I suppose, you know, we've, we've, we've all come through, uh, or you, yourselves have particularly come through an incredibly difficult time uh, in relation to, to, to IPC and, and, and the massive learning that has gone on over the last number of months. Well, we're now into over a year. Um, and I suppose what we're going to be looking at today is about trying to um, solidify those learnings and look at them within uh, the elements of our systems in residential care and looking how we can bed down IPC within our governance model as we move forward. I should say my name is Una Gilvari and I'm the CTO of HCI. My particular area of focus is in relation to evidence-based best practice, uh, where we're looking to pull tools and techniques together um, and ensure that we can support our, our clients uh, to implement best practice throughout their services. Okay, so once we get this technology operational, uh, the, the part political broadcast, I suppose I, I have to say. So HCI is the, the leading professional service provider in resident safety, compliance, and quality improvement intelligence. And we support health and social care organizations um, uh, throughout. So we have a number of, of areas that we're focusing on. Uh, we have quality and safety specialists from a number of different sectors um, that are providing care in resident are providing support uh, to, to clients that provide care in, in relation to residential disabilities um, acute services uh, and, and so on. As I said, we work a lot in relation to best practice and pulling together the evidence-based best practice that's there and then developing tools and techniques that support our customers to ensure that it's being implemented on the ground. And we also utilize a number of um, IT uh, software formats uh, to support the quality information systems within organizations and making sure that we have the right information just in time. So let's move on and just, I suppose, get into to the bones of what we want to talk about today. And I suppose before we can look forward, we need to look back. And, and I'm sure none of you need me to tell you anything about what you've had to experience over the last uh, the last number of months. But I just pulled a, a number of headlines here. And I suppose the one I just wanted to look at is the center one here in relation to the coronavirus pandemic exposes cracks in the nursing home system. And I suppose... Now that we have a certain amount of breathing uh, space, and I know that it, it continues to be incredibly challenging for you, but with the, that, that small little bit of breathing space that we're beginning uh, to get, it's time for us really to, to look and see in relation to our response, and everybody worked so incredibly hard and, 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 and put over and above what could have been asked of them in relation to, to ensuring care continued for for our residents. But looking at, I suppose, at our quality and safety management systems, uh, apart from, from performance, just in relation to the, the systems themselves, and ask whether they were sufficiently robust enough in the first place to be able to support us through the pandemic. And I mean, it's very easy to be wise now and, and, and to have 2020 vision. But if we just look at the models, and particularly, I suppose, in this regard, in relation to our governance model, was it sufficiently robust to give us at least some of the supports that would have assisted us 
uh, through this difficult time. So I suppose we will be considering that and looking at how can we make it now in a stage that we are moving towards a more robust overall governance model, but with specific focus for that IPC governance model. And we're looking, I suppose, uh, overall to take IPC from, from something that's a little bit secular or had been kind of allocated uh, to particular individuals uh, and looking at bringing it up to the forefront of our organizations and I mean we've all had you've all had to do that over the last 12 months but we want to now take those learnings embed them within our structures but also carry them up to the very top level and ensure that they're incorporated into that governance model uh, and, and that it's not just left to the side uh, again, that we, we, we really bring it to the forefront. So we'll be, we'll be thinking about that. I suppose I just wanted to bring up this slide and look at maybe governance best practice, you know, from a general perspective, not particularly focusing on IPC, but all of these aspects are applicable when we talk about IPC governance. And I suppose what we wanted to look at at the beginning is in relation to the knowledge and understanding the residents' needs in relation uh, to IPC. And that's certainly, uh, you know, as I said, again, that level of, of, of knowledge that we have all gained over the last 12 months has just been incredible. But it's about harnessing that knowledge and embedding it into our systems um, so that we can then build from that and move forward towards a more robust uh, IPC model. We're looking when we're involved with governance, we also look in relation to guidance and, you know, we have been sometimes been overwhelmed by the amount of best practice guidance that has come through uh, over over the last 12 months, but it has provided us um, with a lot of information about what we should have as a vision for our, our IPC governance, measurement analysis and, and, and analyzing that information, what data should we be looking for, and when we get that data what should we do with it and, and, and how do we communicate that and, and build uh, from the findings. Ensuring that staff have a clear uh, aspect of their roles and responsibilities. And this, I suppose, is from the top down. We're now looking at a model where we need to ensure that IPC is incorporated throughout the top levels uh, of our roles and responsibilities, but also that it becomes central to the roles and responsibilities of all our, our, our staff members. And they even go so far, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, about incorporating that element of focus for roles and responsibilities, even into performance reviews, that we look at IPC application as part of, of staff performance. Communication, I mean, again, incredible lessons learned over the last 12 months and very difficult yards covered, but about engaging with residents, family and staff. And, and uh, you know, again, in relation to IPC, we are now in a position that we can build on the education that residents and their families already have in relation to IPC. Their, their level of awareness is so high that we want to again build on that and ensure that when we engage with communications as we go forward, that IPC is central to that communication focus. In relation to involvement, again, from a governance perspective, we're looking for senior management and, and, and RPs to be engaged with the IPC process, to understand the IPC process, and on that basis, to be able to resource the model that's required to support it within our organization. So although as I said, this is a generic governance best practice, it can certainly apply when we start to think about an IPC governance model. So again, before we look at 
where we are and where we'd like to be in the future. I just wanted to look back and see um, how we progressed, or, or you know, what what were the the, the, the what was the information that was coming through in relation to IPC governance? And if we go back to April when uh, HICWA released the regulatory assessment framework, and again, we were in the, 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 the high tide at that stage uh, in relation to, to COVID-19, and it was a very reactive environment, obviously, that everybody was in. Um, but again, I just wanted to look at their focus in relation to governance uh, in the IPC model. So they identified effective governance as being central to a robust COVID-19 preparedness plan. Through effective leadership governance and management, the registered provider can ensure that appropriate systems, processes, behaviors, and referral pathways are in place to support the staff, the residents, and to manage the service in the event of an outbreak. So we, uh, from the outset, there was that flagging that effective governance was central, but the tools and the models to ensure that were, again, uh, they were very difficult. They, were, they, they, were, they weren't very tangible, I suppose, uh, for, for organizations. And the biggest impact across the board was the lack of individuals that were there to implement the governance due to, due to the impact uh, of, of people um, being out with COVID or, or, or being restricted in the movements. So that was back in April. So then when we moved into July and, and, and then HICWA, again, we're doing a kind of review at that stage, looking at the impact at, uh, to that point. And within that document, they identified that the governance and management regulation acts as an important indicator of how well a nursing home is being run. And if a nursing home performs poorly under this regulation, then it is often the case that the outcomes for residents are negatively impacted. Now, that's a, a general statement in relation to governance. But I suppose if we look at governance, IPC, IPC governance, then it is very much the same. So we now need to say, OK, well, if we can act effectively on IPC governance and put an effective model in place, then again, that is obviously going to, to impact the residents uh, positively. They also noted that the governance and management regulation had the highest level of non-conformance across the program of compliance assessments. So they saw that uh, you know, if, if, if there was an effective governance and management model or, or one that was doing its, its, its damnedest in, in, in difficult circumstances, it certainly led it out that the organization as a whole would be in a better position. They saw as an area of lack of uh, an area of concern uh, related to the registered providers' lack of contingency arrangements in place if the PIC was to fall ill or require self quarantine. And I think this element of it is going to run through in all of the aspects that we look at later about that contingency for for management and the contingency model that needs to be built in to governance as we move forward. Um, you know, it can no longer be one individual's role and responsibility. You know, it, it, it is too vast for one set of shoulders to carry. So it is very much as we move forward, and this is back in July, and as we advance through, we'll see that they are now looking, they're looking for a broader approach to those contingency arrangements so that the roles and responsibilities are integrated in all roles and responsibilities, and that there are individuals built 
to step up into particular aspects of that role so that it's not left in a singular position. But we'll look at that as we move through. Other issues identified by inspectors uh, back in July, the review of the policies and procedures. And I know myself from, from being very much involved in that. I mean, the, the, the tsunami of uh, guidance documents as they flow through. And I mean, it was constant, uh, almost daily, if not hourly, we were getting new guidance uh, that was to be incorporated. But you know that was incredibly challenging um, for, for the governance uh, model to, to be able to support. And obviously that access to resources, provision of testing, and looking at behavioral support plans is so as key areas. So that, that brought us up to July. So then we look at when uh, I just briefly wanted to look at, at that, the, the nursing homes expert panel and where they were positioned by August. And at that stage, they were saying, you know, the nursing homes have to adopt a clear IPC strategy. And in many organizations prior to this, uh, although there was effective policies and procedures, the strategy somehow wasn't as clear cut. And that when uh, when the crush came on, the cracks showed in relation to that. If we go back to that heading, um, that the strategy wasn't sufficiently robust enough to be able to support in a very difficult circumstance. They identified that it was essential to have that strong, informed nursing leadership on site uh, with a documented contingency plan, again, for when leaders are absent. So how are we going to manage that? We're not going to be able to, to you know, to give a number of people uh, individual roles and responsibilities to do everything. We need to be able to um, issue that out throughout the organization. And they also noted that HICWA itself had identified a deficit in infection control and risk management expertise in this sector. So again, the pieces of the jigsaw coming together in relation to um, the potential cracks that were there as we move forward. I wanted to have a quick look again, looking at that time period, June up to September, and look at some of the findings that HICO are coming back with during that time. And again, uh, HCI completed, uh, completed a review of, of um, a significant uh, number of, of uh, inspection reports that came through. And I just wanted to pull some of the findings in relation to that so that we can know the key areas of their focus at that time. So one of the findings, governance and leadership arrangements within the residential center required review to ensure appropriate systems were in place to effectively monitor the service delivered and ensure it was safe including those relating to IPC. So again, drawing IPC, obviously we, you know, our focus was on IPC application on the floor, but what they're doing then is looking at how was it being pulled up through those governance and leadership arrangements that were in the organization. Another finding the management systems for monitoring the service in relation to infection prevention control uh, needed or was not found to be effective. So again, although the best of practice, a lot of work being done with IPC application on the floor, they could see that the monitoring aspect of it, again, linking to the governance, the monitoring, the analyzing of data was not being pulled up through the governance model. The inspector found that management in the centre needs to be strengthened to ensure suitability of experienced staff to deputise in managerial roles. So again, we can see that, uh, that, that pattern coming through in relation to that. 
They found that infection uh, IPC policies, they were available. However, they were not reflective of current guidance. And I know, again, incredibly challenging to try and keep those documents up to date. They identified from that the failure to implement the HPSC uh, interim public uh, guidelines. Uh, again, significant piece of, of, of documentation that has gone through a number of iterations. And, and one that I thought was interesting that that post COVID-19 review report, which is getting a little bit more focused now, I would say, uh, it was uh, the report that was completed was more of a timeline of events rather than an analysis and review of the outbreaks to identify those lessons learned and the changes required going forward. And I do think this, as I said, is something that is, is, is getting a little bit more focus um, in, in currently and, and as we move forward. Just, I wanted to pull up a couple of findings in relation to risk management during that time, June to September. Again, they, they identified a robust system for audit was required to ensure all areas of practice were sufficiently monitored. For example, supervision uh, for the effective implementation, uh, implementation of IPC. So again, risk our auditing is, is, is again, one of those tools that the governance model needs to support so that they saw that there were weaknesses in that area. They thought the infection control template was not comprehensive enough, and they felt that there was insufficient risk management planning specifically for res residents with challenge behavior or those with additional vulnerabilities, uh, and that resident safeguarding was compromised due to rough staff restrictions, which, which would come as, as no surprise. But those insufficient risk management planning, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, in a couple of slides about how we can maybe look at that risk management, linking it to our IPC governance, and looking at some continuous improvement measures we can take. So when we come out of that June, September timeframe, then in September, we had the release of the COVID assurance framework, okay, uh, which are all I'm sure very well aware with. So the register provider, they detailed, must have a governance framework in place that sets out the authority and accountability for infection prevention and control within the designated centers. So we're moving away, I suppose, from that very reactive space that we were in into now looking at a proactive building a governance framework model to support IPC. And it's interesting to note that this is the first document that pulls up reference then to the national standards for the infection prevention and control in community services, a standards that a set of standards that was released back in 2018. So at this stage, we're starting to realign look to the future, we have a COVID assurance framework that has a particular area of focus, but we are now starting to pull through those national standards that have been there in the background, haven't really, hadn't really gotten a whole lot of attention prior to this, uh, prior, certainly prior to COVID. And then when COVID hit, it was much more reactive in relation to a specific focus of what needed to be done. But now, HICWA started looking at that broader focus in relation to the national standards. So our current IPC requirement model and governance model is, is currently looks like this, where we have our SI, we have our, our 2016 standards. There is a throwback reference to some degree in relation to the national standards for IPC, but the focus really currently is that COVID-19 assurance framework and, and the 12-week the assessment. But I think if we move forward as we uh, as 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 we become uh, more confident in our position and, and we're not in that that reactive environment, the focus will 
really that, that COVID-19 assurance framework will fall away and it will be a full on focus on the national standards for the infection prevention and control uh, in community services. Now, we spent some time during, uh, during the last 12 months taking an in-depth look in relation to those set of standards. And they are an excellent set of standards um, and, and there is some very, very um, uh, effective uh, aspects of them. To look at again, and I'm sure you've, you've, you've seen them before in which they're very familiar, the layout is, is very reflective of our 2016 uh, set of standards. But I suppose what I wanted to focus on in these is in relation to the standards for leadership governance and management. Um, there are five standards and there's approximately 20 criteria that fall throughout those. Um, but again, if we just briefly look at it, it has clear governance arrangements to ensure the sustainable delivery of safe, effective IPC and antimicrobial stewardship. We don't want antimicrobial stewardship to be the poor relation. That, you know, that's something that needs to be pulled in, in through our focus. We would need clear management arrangements then to ensure that's infiltrated down through uh, the, the, the service and care that we're providing. We're looking for formalized support arrangements to ensure the safe, uh, the delivery of that safe uh, care. So those support arrangements, be they external support arrangements and also internal uh, uh, support arrangements, again, to ensure the roles and responsibilities are effectively uh, dispersed within the organization. They're looking for staff to be empowered to exercise their professional and personal responsibility and ensuring that through effective training um, and, and education in relation to IPC. And finally, the one that, that can be forgotten is in relation to the service providers to ensure externally contracted agencies adhere to safe and effective IPC. And again, that's a really important focus uh, that, 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 that uh, we need to have is that we can control to some degree our own environment, but we are very dependent on our external suppliers and our, our, our service providers. And we need to be very clear with them in relation to their roles and responsibilities for IPC when they come into our facility. So that's, that's also something to consider. I've also pulled up some of the areas, I suppose, that relate to risk and just briefly in relation to, to talking about risk, they talk about choosing care options with the least infection risk but particularly about that monitoring performance to identify areas of good practice and in infection prevention and control. So again, that monitoring to ensure, are we maintaining the level of, of uh, and the quality of care that we want to, to be able, that we need to be able to provide in relation to IPC. And again, in theme three, safe uh, care and support, we talk about minimizing the risk again with those safe work practice um, and ensuring that they're reflective of the relevant regulation and best practice. I just wanted to pull this tool up for you. And again, this is something that we've been working on in-house where we wanted to take the COVID-19 assurance framework and those self that self-assessment questionnaire and map it back onto the national standards. Because as I said, you know, I would foresee in the future that that COVID-19 assurance framework and self-assessment question will fall away. And we're going to be really integrating ourselves into the full set of national standards uh, for IPC and what that means for our organization. So in each case, we were able to take those self-assessment questions, map them back into the national standards. And then from that, we could look forward to see, well, what would the required outcomes be 
as we move forward. So we can see with the second one in relation to, um, they talk about an infection control strategy in the self-assessment question. In the standards, they talk about strategic objectives and operational plans. And from our perspective in the last column, we were looking at what would the required outcomes relate to those. So it could be ensuring that uh, infection prevention control is on those senior management team agendas, that terms of reference are completed, that there's KPIs built, the organizational chart is very reflective of the IPC governance model, our safety safe statement is, is sufficiently robust to support the IPC, and looking at surveillance processes for infection uh, and, and antimicrobial usage. So it was a, a case really of starting to see the bigger picture in relation to IPC and governance, rather than looking just at those self-assessment questions, which had a much more narrow focus, which is understandable in the environment that we were in. Just in relation to that self-assessment tool that you're all required to complete every 12 weeks, that COVID-19 assurance framework, um, I just wanted to flag that up the cell, from, from some of the findings that are coming up uh, in HICWA reports. Uh, one of them was a self-assessment questionnaire had been completed in respect of infection prevention control, and the provider had judged themselves as being largely compliant. However, when HICWA reviewed it, they detailed the facility as non-compliant orange against uh, Regulation 27. So we need to be very careful when we complete that self-assessment that we do it um, in, a, in a very objective manner. Uh, and we really have to approach it as a HICWA, you know, as, as, as a HICWA inspector would approach it. Another finding, the self-assessment completed regarding COVID-19 preparedness and infection prevention control showed that the centre was 100% compliant. However, it did not reflect or identify the findings highlighted in their IPC control audit. So, this, this facility had completed an IPC audit, they had found uh, issues that needed to be addressed. However, as I said, the, the, the COVID-19 assurance, um, the self-assessment had found no problems at all. So there was, a, there was a disconnect there. And in that case, HICWA deemed them being substantially compliant at a risk level of yellow. So that was very much a whistle stop tour, but let's look now at seeing, well, how can we incorporate IPC in the government's model and what's the best approach in that regard? So taking from our learnings for over the last 12 months, taking from the documents and the reports as they came out from the expert teams, and then particularly looking at those national standards for IPC, what do we need to have? Well, number one, we need to have an IPC responsibility at senior level, and that's looking for allocation of overall accountability, responsibility and authority for IPC and antimicrobial stewardship to the registered provider. And that needs to be detailed significantly and detailed, you know, forensically in relation to uh, their job description. Uh, the, they, they want to look to the RP for them to be knowledgeable and involved in relation to IPC and driving the culture of safety. And I know uh, for myself, myself going in in relation to being involved in, in audit practices, you know, the very first person we're obviously going to, to talk to is in relation to senior management. And we need to get our cues from them, how they focus on the aspect of IPC and how they see it within that governance model, that it's not, a particular person's job or a group of individuals job that it is integrated in the culture of the organization so we're looking to progress to, to that regard 
We want within the senior management team structure to have a standalone infection prevention and control team. And, and with that, as I said, reflected in the organizational team chart, a proper terms of reference, a detailed terms of reference in place for that team, an agenda for that team and, and, and a, a schedule of meetings that is completed uh, on an ongoing basis. So we need to see that buy-in uh, within the senior teams. Other indicators that would, I suppose, mark out that we are committed to IPC governance would be to look at IPC within our strategic and operational plans. Um, you know, the, the strategic plans every three years, operational plans every year, but we need to be looking at IPC as a central aspect of that uh, and not just, uh, you know, something that, that toddles in at a later stage, that they now need to be part of our central focus and planning. And then within that, I suppose, uh, look at the budgetary considerations that are involved in those, that if we have run into particular problems uh, with our experience, then we need to start looking, planning and budgeting for those as we move forward. We need to make sure that those external organization arrangements to support clinical care are bedded down within the service. And again, a huge amount of experience gained over the last 12 months, but we need to formalize those relationships and bed them down within our service so that we have access to the supports that we need um, on, on, on a need to know basis that we have our, our fingertips to them. It's really important that we collect, analyze and discuss relevant data um, that's going to be reflective of our performance of IPC and antimicrobial stewardship. And a, a really good support for that is an effective batch of, of key performance indicators. Again, we've spent time in, in HCI of building up a set of those uh, KPIs that will effectively trend and benchmark our performance as we move forward. And that level of, of our, the, 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 it's really important that when we have that information, that it's communicated throughout our organization. And that leads to the last point of ensuring that IPC is now incorporated into all of the team's terms of reference and all of the team's agendas, including the senior management team. So that irrespective of the teams that are meeting, be it risk management, be it our, our service and care, be it our health and safety, whatever the case may be, that risk management is integral to all aspects of that. And whatever communications and data that is coming through, that it is discussed in those forums to ensure that there are learnings in relation to that. Other areas, and, and, and I think it's, it's going to be a central focus is in relation to building um, an appropriate infection prevention and control program, an annual program that will lay out all of the objectives for our IPC approach uh, on an annual basis, be that in relation to our vaccination programs, be it in relation to our education and training, our laying out our KPIs, our audit model, that we're going to be focusing on for IPC, pulling together all those aspects. And so that's a very clear approach in relation to IPC. Ensuring those policies and procedures are reflected by best practice, a very challenging aspect, but certainly something that requires um, a lot of focus um, uh, to ensure that we can bed in best practice and roll them out in our facilities and ensuring the IPC responsibilities, as mentioned earlier, for suppliers and service providers is bedded in 
I know I'm running short on time, but I think we'll, we'll just give this a couple of more minutes in relation to it. Again, in the governance model, looking at those IPC resources, and this is probably something that you're much more familiar with, looking at that IPC lead and ensuring that it's resourced within the organization. But as I said, looking at the job descriptions from a wider perspective and ensuring that IPC is central to everybody's role and responsibilities. And again, looking at them as part of performance reviews. Nothing makes something as important as when we know we're going to be talking about it in our performance reviews. So again, it's that central focus of IPC and pulling it into our culture. Again, the education and training is obviously very central for our staff, but also incorporating an education model for residents and, and their families and ensuring that, you know, when that, that we build on that, that education process we have uh, as we move forward. Briefly in relation to risk management, I'd recommend very strongly that that COVID-19 learnings review is completed in detail. I know it's a requirement to the HPSE, uh, HSE, HPSC guidance that, that it's done, but it's a really of excellent value where we can lock in the learnings and then from that, bring any of those residual risks that are left into our current risk management process. I would really advise that the service would look at those national standards for IPC, complete a gap analysis and, and, and benchmark yourself to see, well, what are the future requirements and what do we need to do to move towards that? And again, where there are gaps, we can again look at incorporating those into our risk registers. IPC audits, obviously, it's, it goes out saying we, we really need to complete forensic IPC audits that are incorporating best practice uh, um, requirements that we're really looking, not just at our singular focus, but from a broader perspective of best practice. And again, looking at those incidents and complaints that are coming through and identifying the trends uh, that may relate to IPC. In relation to individual risk management, uh, I'd recommend consideration of those individual vulnerabilities relating to IPC, both at uh, incoming uh, admission and on an ongoing basis. So there's a huge amount of stuff there in relation to looking at IPC, again, moving away from that secular model of IPC being allocated to individual, you know, a set of individuals or one individual, but looking at it from a much broader perspective in relation to governance. Um, I would have to say, uh, of course, that we're, we're available to support uh, across the board. We run a number of um, assurance programs, uh, but with particular focus currently in relation to IPC governance and developing that uh, infection prevention control program, an annual program that will set the organization up, uh, really looking at those strategic objectives, the KPIs, um, the, the staffing programs, the vaccination programs, and really building the model that's going to carry through uh, in relation to it. Completing IPC audits, both virtually and, 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 uh, and on site, um, and looking at incorporating um, all aspects of best practice uh, as part of that. Uh, we obviously have that set of policies and procedures also uh, that incorporate all of the IPC uh, best practice. On-site gap analysis is also part of our, our, of our ammunition, uh, and that's something that we also complete and, and support. So in relation to uh, all that we've discussed, um, there is a lot there, um, and, and, and I know you've already done so much over the last 12 months. Uh, there is support available, um, but I suppose the primary focus is to think, okay, uh, we may have a lot of excellent IPC activity on the ground, 
we now need to ensure that it is incorporated into our governance model because as we all know quality uh, and focus can't be pushed from the bottom up it has to come from the top down so we really need to lay out our stall in relation to that ipc governance model and ensure that we can roll it out in that regard with that i think rosemary we can finish on that regard and thank you very much for attending and we hope to see you very soon we have a number of other webinar plans um, and uh, we will we will hope to be rolling those out over the next number of weeks and months so thank you for your time